0: Amen. Let's turn together uh, to the sermon scripture. Uh, you'll find it tonight in First Timothy once again. Uh, we're coming tonight to the end of chapter 4, First uh, Timothy 4 uh, 12 through 16. Church here now, God's Inerrant word. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Father, we are born in sin, conceived in sin, and all our lives from our infancy, we are guilty of actual sin. We are fallen. There is no goodness or righteousness but that which comes from you. You, O Lord, are holy, just, righteous, perfect in all your ways. Rather than condemning us and casting us out of your presence forever, by the miracle of grace, you have come to us to save our souls, and you have given your Son even Jesus, our Lord, to die a horrible death on a cross in our place, taking what our sins deserve that we might live and go free. Lord, we know that you love us, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And do not forsake us now or at any time of our need, Be with us, we pray, and lead us into all truth. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to speak with you tonight about the shape and structure of the pastor's ministry. And I intentionally titled the sermon something that I thought might catch your eye, and maybe bring someone from Sunday morning who didn't always come Sunday evening, Uh, what's a pastor to do? See, you could take that as a gripe, (laughs) as a complaint. Oh, woe is me. Uh, The ministry is so hard. Uh, What's a pastor to do? And if that's what you were thinking this morning, and you came back for that sermon, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Because the thrust of this message is, <clears throat> as to his work, as to his calling, as to his ministry, what should the pastor be doing? Something to that effect. And I'd like to speak with you uh, mostly about that tonight from First Timothy 4. But before we do that, I want to spend just a moment addressing verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, not all manuscripts, and therefore not all English translations have in spirit, but also in faith and in purity. We often hear these words or an appeal to them. Uh, on occasions like high school graduations or uh, to encourage our young people that they are never too young uh, to love the Lord and to serve the Lord and to seek Him with all of their heart. And that is all well and good and appropriate, I suppose. But I do want to remind you that Paul is writing this, not really to little children or even to teenagers, but to a young Minister, a man serving the church in the great city of Ephesus, one of the greatest cities of the ancient world, and doing so as a relatively young man. Now, of course, we don't know exactly how old he was, how unusual it might have been for a minister to be of relatively youthful age, nor do we know how old the other elders in that congregation might have been. And think of that term for a moment, right? Children, uh, respect your elders. When you hear that, you think of an, of an older guy. Uh, we don't know how old the other elders uh, in the church of Ephesus might have been, some of whom, potentially, or potentially members of that congregation, were tempted at least to, well, as one translation puts it, look down upon young Timothy, simply because of his, well, less than advanced age. They were perhaps tempted to despise his youth his youthfulness. And so, in light of that possibility that there were those who were looking down upon him and holding him in contempt because he was young, this young whippersnapper leading us, who does he think he is? If there was the expectation that the elders of the church are typically older, but that Timothy was not an older man, well, you can see quite easily How this could go. But what Paul says is that respect cannot be demanded. And it is not Timothy's to demand it. It must be earned. Uh, Timothy must see to it that despite his young age, he is respected, not looked down upon, but how? By being an example. And therefore, by winning the respect of others. This is how he can silence those voices that despised his youth, who thought that surely he was too young to be a pastor. Not by lording it over them or domineering them, but by setting an example before them in word in speech, and how he talked among them. We've had so much to say about this in recent months, how we speak about one another, to one another. You know what a word poorly spoken can do. It can spark a wildfire and get out of control, and you cannot put that word back in the, toothpaste, the tube, so to speak. In conduct... In behavior, how he treats others, how he behaves around them, how he conducts himself, what is his character. Uh, In love, let his behavior toward others always be of a charitable nature, centered on others, the spirit of love in his heart. In faith, let his life always demonstrate that he is a man of faith, who walks by faith and not by sight, who trusts in God, as we said about Abram this morning, who prefers God and the things of God to this world and the things of this world. And finally, purity. Let him conform and let his life conform in thought, in word and deed to God's moral law. Timothy should avoid lust, bitterness, greed, and lying. What a minefield for any leader, and especially younger ones, I suppose. But relative youth did not disqualify Timothy from leadership. But it did mean that he would have to work extra hard to win the hearts and respect of some people. And this would be done not by demanding it, but by living a godly example before them. Well, so much for verse 12. To our main idea tonight what's a pastor uh, to do? What is the shape and structure? of a pastor's ministry, what does it look like? There's a scene in the film, uh, many of you I'm sure saw it, uh, Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams is playing a New England uh, prep school uh, teacher uh, of English. He begins a class by asking a young student to read the introduction to a text on English poetry. And the student begins reading. But after a few lines, Robin Williams, or his character, interrupts him and tells him that what he is reading is all wrong. Rip out that page, uh, he tells the student. The student smiles. Of course, the teacher is joking. No, rip it out. Rip out that page of the book. Well, one one doesn't have to tell a classroom of adolescent uh, boys more than twice to begin ripping out pages from their textbooks. So he rips the page out of the book. His fellow students uh, do the same. I love that scene. I love that the beloved teacher is willing to tell his students, you know, uh, I want you to get rid of that page. It's not only not helpful, it's counterproductive. And you'd be better off by far without it. And I would just as happily tell you, and I believe I have told you before, that there is a page in your Bibles that is all wrong as well, and that it too ought to be ripped out. Now, I checked, and I have not ripped that page out of my own Bible, so I'm speaking very hypocritically tonight. I'm too afraid to rip it out. And after all, it serves the purpose of this illustration but it doesn't belong in the Bible. It's the only page in the Bible the Holy Spirit did not put there. It's the page, of course, that separates Malachi from Matthew, the empty page between your Old and your New Testament that suggests so powerfully, however subtly, that when one moves from Malachi to Matthew, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that one is crossing a great divide, a great frontier, that one is moving from one spiritual world into another, from one way of looking at faith to another. But The Bible never teaches us that. It never teaches us to look at the first 39 books of the Bible in any way other than as the living word of God. To be believed and obeyed. And the blank page, if you have it, between Malachi and Matthew suggests something the Bible itself never does. It's very important that when we read in the New Testament that Holy Scripture is God breathed, it is inspired by God and useful for teaching and training in righteousness. The scripture being referred to was, by and large, what we call today the Old Testament. And Christians are, by and large today, as a rule, quite ambivalent about the first 39 books of the Bible. They believe, by and large, that what is called the Old Testament presents a preliminary and inferior stage of religious development. That it's a historical background against which the New Testament can be understood and appreciate, appreciated, but not much more. Important as those books might be, the Old Testament is obsolete in that view. And never mind that it is all very often to the stories of the Old Testament that we turn especially to the Psalms of the Old Testament that a Christian believer turns in times of loneliness and of trouble and of sorrow. That's where we find language of prayer and faith and worship that cannot be improved upon and is not improved upon in the New Testament and is not meant to be improved upon there. Our Lord would have taken it for granted that believers would never look for an improvement upon the Psalms. Believers in every age would look to the Bible, the whole Bible, for the structure of our faith and our practice. Now I'm belaboring this point with you tonight for a reason. Bear with me on this. I could just as easily be making this point if I were speaking to you on the topic of uh, liturgy, or the use of psalms in worship. But I want to belabor the point and make the point this evening that when Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine, that he is in fact saying nothing new, giving no new commandment, Exhorting Timothy to do nothing that would not have been utterly commonplace and familiar to anyone with even the most rudimentary familiarity with Jewish worship, whether tabernacle or temple or synagogue. That is to say that it would have been taken for granted that in every Jewish worship service, there would have been a healthy serving of the public reading of Holy Scripture and added to that the related preaching and teaching of the Word of God. What I'm saying, therefore, beloved, is that what Paul is saying here is nothing new. Paul is not inventing something. It was everywhere and all the time the customary practice of Jewish worship. You remember in Luke chapter 4, when our Lord Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. We are told that he stood up to read and that he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And that when he opened the book and came to the reading in Isaiah designated as the reading for that day. And it just so happened that it was the prophetic passage from Isaiah concerning the spirit-endowed servant of the Lord. And that when Jesus had read those words and finished his reading and handed the book back to the attendant and sat down, he was doing nothing different than what would have happened at untold thousands of services. Again, whether tabernacle or temple or synagogue or any special service through all of Israel's history. You'll remember that in Nehemiah 8, after Nehemiah had led the returning captives in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, that once the wall was completed and the harder work now of spiritual renewal was undertaken, that the entire assembly of God's people was gathered together on a certain occasion, that a special platform or pulpit, a raised platform, was even erected for that day. And what did they do? But they read from the book of the law all morning and well into the day, and that they went about the congregation giving the meaning and providing an explanation of the text so that all people, men and women and young and old, could understand. And the result on that day, uh, you may remember, was weeping. Weeping that they remembered that they had broken the covenant and sinned against Yahweh and weeping over the joy of hearing the word of God again uh, after so many years. And that this continued to be the practice of the early church is clear from the instructions provided in manuals like the Didache, which has been dated to 125 BC. And this is what we read there Quote, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president, elder, I suppose, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. What a window into the early church's worship, modeled, incidentally, upon synagogue worship, and reflecting precisely what Paul says here. Let there be public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching or doctrine. And now I have to tell you, beloved, and I tell you by way of lamentation, that we live in a sad time in the history of the church, at least as far as American evangelical churches go. For we live in a time in which the public reading of Scripture has been nearly eliminated from Christian worship services. The average evangelical service today contains relatively little prayer, little confession of sin, and to be sure, little reading of the Bible. The average service that I became familiar with usually began with a prolonged time of praise and worship By that, what is meant is music and singing with very little, if any, scripture or prayer. Now, once the pastor comes, there is, of course, a sermon passage that is read and preached from, but aside from that, the service is largely music-dominated, leaving little time for public reading. I had become very accustomed to this. I didn't know any different. I began to study Reformed worship and attend Reformed churches. Uh, Needless to say, not only did the praise band give way to the piano and the screen give way to the hymnal, but I immediately noticed the preponderance of scripture reading in the worship service. And in my ignorance, I had never heard of a call to worship or a call to confession or an assurance of pardon and there was the sermon passage often supported by additional passage from the bible either old or new testament it reminds me of a story uh, my graduate advisor told us students years ago he was before he was a professor he was a, a rural pastor of a church in north carolina where he preached for a number of years and every sunday there would be included in the liturgy, readings from the Old Testament, uh, the Gospels, and one of the epistles. And years after he had done this, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, an elderly woman in the congregation came up to him afterwards and said, Pastor Muller, I know why you've been doing that all these years. (laughs) And he said, oh, I'm glad you noticed. Why is that? Well, it's, it's just how you preach. There is the promise of God from the Old Testament, the fulfillment of God in Christ from the Gospels, and the interpretation and explanation of that from the epistles. And you can imagine how happy that kind of a thing would make a pastor to hear from one of his members. But she was exactly right. She was exactly right. But the point is, is that the worship service that I came to appreciate and love was saturated with Scripture, Old and New Testament, from beginning to end. And what did that mean? But that God was continually speaking in the service to his people. Dear friend, isn't that, after all, what we believe that the Bible is? It is the word of God. It is the very voice of God to his people. Whose voice we hear when the Bible is read. And shouldn't we delight and rejoice to hear his voice above all others. Isn't it remarkable then, not in a good way, that we can apparently find the Bible boring and uninteresting and irrelevant, that we call that formal liturgy, If the Bible is being read in church? How can that be? If the Bible is really God's voice to us, speaking to us. Now, you'll hear a lot of people complain, I know, I don't like a liturgy. I don't like that high church stuff. It's stuffy and formal and overly fixed. And I have to be honest, in my teens and early 20s, that resonated with me. Then I started attending churches that some people would call liturgical or formal. And the only thing I found is this. They included a whole lot more Bible reading than I had become accustomed to. And because I loved the Bible, I loved hearing it read in church. It was a delight to the soul. Heather will remember, I spent the first weeks and months in church, weeping with joy to hear the scriptures read. And in time, I came to understand why. If we sing for 30 minutes straight... We are dominating the service. We're doing all the talking. It's a monologue. It's a one-sided conversation. We are talking to God, but God is not talking to us. And what I came to understand is that liturgy, so called at its best, is a holy dialogue. It's a sacred conversation between God and his people. He speaks to us. He calls us to worship. We respond in prayer and singing. We hear his word of grace. We respond with gratitude and with gifts. We hear his good news and his call to holiness and obedience. We respond with prayers and songs of dedication and renewal. God has given the first word in his call. And the last word in his blessing. But in between, God speaks and we speak. And God speaks and we speak. A holy dialogue. And it is astonishing, truly, to live at a time when preference has taken over and it rules over substance. When worship is dominated more by a sense of style than the objective standard of the word of God. I'm not holding back, obviously, from you tonight, my convictions, but I believe they are born out of and based upon God's word and observations of tragic weakness in evangelical worship in our day, where the Bible has largely been removed and you largely have Bible-less worship services. It is no wonder, then, you have largely Bible-less worship. Christians. So what's a pastor to do? Well, Paul says, and remember he was coming, however long it was delayed, till I come. Give your attention to these things. Now, every other time that the word reading, the word translated here, reading, is used in the New Testament. It is used in the context of the public reading of the Old Testament scriptures. And so it really is with good reason that a number of translations render this, give attention not merely to reading, but to the public reading of scripture. And exhortation or preaching includes giving the sense of the scripture, providing its meaning, and applying it to people's lives warning them against sin and error, encouraging and challenging them to step out in faith in different areas of life. And haven't we seen this week by week in our Genesis sermons? As important as it is to read the passages, as powerful as it is simply to hear the word of God read, it is, not necess- it is necessary, but not sufficient, to merely read the Bible. We must also preach it, explain it, give the sense and the meaning and apply it. See what lessons of faith are to be learned. And doctrine, of course, teaching. Now That means to provide instruction in the basic doctrines of Scripture. And all of this is important for any number of reasons. First, especially for a young preacher like Timothy, it demonstrates to a congregation that the minister stands under the authority of the word of God, that his authority derives from God, and that he points his people to the same ultimate authority. He models for his people an approach to the Bible, reverence for the word of God and submission to it. And that's true not only for young leaders, but for all leaders in the church who gain proper respect by demonstrating that they themselves are yielded to the authority of God's word. And they urge their followers to do the same. Further, he is not to neglect, verse 14, this gift. He is to stir it up. To use a phrase found elsewhere, to fan it into flames, to develop it even further. And Paul reminds him of a very solemn occasion. We might say his ordination. When by the spirit of prophecy, the presbytery, that's the word really for eldership there, lay hands on him. I remember that occasion like it was yesterday in my life. It is a solemn reminder. In effect, remember your ordination. Remember when the elders laid hands on you, what was prophesied over you. You were set apart for this, equipped for this, given gifts for this, by God himself, his people confirming. But you see that in every way, the minister is to have an utterly word-centered ministry. He's to read the Bible. What a thought when you... Call a pastor, one of the things you say to that man is, we want you to come here and we want you to read the Bible. Read it to yourself and read it to us. He is to explain it and apply it. He's to instruct them in its basic teachings. It's to be his business, his ministry, his life. He's not to depart from it for any reason, not for fads or gimmicks or novelties or trends. This is to be the heart of his ministry at all times, whether in season and out of season, Paul will say in Second Timothy chapter 4, whether it is particularly popular or not, acceptable or not, largely bearing fruit or not. He's to read the Bible and preach the Bible and teach the Bible always and in every way. That's his ministry. That's its shape. That's its structure. It is word-based. He's not to neglect that gift. Verse 14, he's to fan it into flames. And Timothy is to meditate on this. Isn't that something? Timothy was to receive Paul's letter and he was to study it carefully and take it very seriously to think long and hard on what Paul was saying to him as if it was scripture itself for that is what it was and notice how thoroughly all consuming this call is Timothy give yourself Entirely to these things. It's all consuming, all encompassing, all life defining. The minister must be very careful that entanglements do not interfere with his commitment to the word based ministry which means at least one thing, that there will be sufficient time for study, sermon preparation. But he is to make progress in these things in a way that is evident to all, I suppose especially to those who looked down upon his youth. And beloved, isn't that encouraging? Isn't it a reminder that if Timothy was to make progress. That even the best of us still have something to learn, still have a ways to go, still must grow. We said it with Paul. uh, None of us are born experts. He's to make progress. And it's very clear what that means. The final verse, verse 16 reminds us that we must avoid the dichotomy of thinking that we can preach good sermons and neglect our personal lives on the one hand or that we can pay attention to our personal lives but fail in preaching on the other. For he says take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. How often has it happened that a pastor fails to take heed to himself? He neglects his soul. He neglects his spiritual progress. His growth in grace. He doesn't see to it that his sins are repented of that he keeps short accounts with God. How often has this happened? Uh, A man has what appears to be a powerful public ministry with a huge church, tremendous numerical growth. But inside, all is not well. At home, all is not well in the family, or in the marriage. Things are a mess in the heart, and the whole thing comes crashing down. We've seen many examples in the last year or two, very prominent ministers who have fallen, not because they couldn't preach, but because they had neglected their wife, couldn't stay off alcohol, or bullied their elders, or found comfort in another woman's arms. Take heed to yourself, Paul says. Don't think that you can concentrate only on your public ministry. You are setting yourself up for a fall. And doctrine, too, teaching. The pastor's preaching ministry and right faith, that too must not be neglected. It must be maintained. And here is the final promise. If you continue in this, if you continue in these things, young Timothy, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. It's something, isn't it? Ultimately, only God saves, of course. But don't you get a sense of what Paul is saying? And he can say this, of course, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. A man must preach the gospel if his hearers are to be saved. And we often forget that there is a spiritual battle going on here. We often forget what is at stake in our church and in our ministry and in our preaching. And Paul says, Timothy, it is nothing less than the eternal souls of men. And if you will take these things to heart and continue in them, well, it will serve ultimately to save him and to save those who hear him. That's breathtaking. That is how monumentally important the pastoral ministry and preaching is, that it can be said that by faithful living and preaching, the minister and the hearer can be saved as they are directed to the real Christ and to the true gospel. But conversely, it can also be said, as has been demonstrated throughout history, when there is corruption in the lives of ministers, when there is not the right preaching of the word of God, you will condemn yourself. And your hearers. It is a terrible thought. Listen to what Calvin said. Uh, It is no ordinary spur to excite the thoughtfulness of pastors. When they learn that their own salvation, as well as that of the people, depends upon their industry and perseverance with which they devote themselves to their office. Amen. May God have grace and mercy on us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for a, a church who love you, who love your word, and come to hear it. Save him who preaches and those who hear by directing our hearts. To the true Christ who gave himself for our souls, we ask it in his name.